This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics. I'm Dr. Kate Devlin. Silicon Valley has long been considered the land of innovation and prosperity. After all, it's the birthplace of some of the world's most well-known tech brands. You're probably listening to this podcast on a device that was dreamed up in a Silicon Valley boardroom. And I'm just back from the area, fresh from a research event hosted at Google X. In my Uber to the hotel, I heard on the radio that San Jose, Silicon Valley's largest city, has some of the highest average house prices in the whole of the US. But after a year of high-profile layoffs, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and CEOs pivoting to cage fighting rather than doing their day job, have the high-tech industries lost touch with their innovative roots? Are the glory days of Silicon Valley over? Joining me to discuss this is Joel Kotkin, Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange, California. Joel, welcome to The Bunker. Uh, It's my pleasure. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of Silicon Valley? Well, one of the, of course, dirty little secrets of Silicon Valley is it was largely an area that was sparked by federal spending. Um, First of, obviously, Department of Defense poured in a fortune. It was a huge employer. Up until at least the 80s, the biggest employer was Lockheed Missiles in Space. And then there was a lot from, from NASA. And one of the things that drove semiconductor development was the need to miniaturize for spaceflight. So the federal government was a big part of it. The other part of it was it was in a beautiful area where housing was not incredibly expensive. So you had sort of perfect conditions. You had federal money coming in, a beautiful area that was actually amazingly underdeveloped. It was great quality of life, all sorts of defense dollars going into the area. And that really sparked it. And then it went into this phase of the one great difference between Southern California and Northern California is when the defense budget cut, Silicon Valley did a very good job of moving towards consumer-oriented technology, whereas Southern California, which was more defense-oriented, never made that transition as completely. And then you had this wonderful expansion. You know, I was there, I covered the 1980s boom in Silicon Valley. And what was terrific about it was the amount of competition. No, you would have 30 or 40 disk drive companies. You'd have dozens of personal computer companies, all with different niches. Now, at the end of the day, you ended up with a few players, but there was that kind of competition that we don't see anymore. Now you've got a lot of small companies that big companies invest in so that when their technology is developed, they can use it. I mean, that's clearly what's happening with AI. Absolutely. When people talk about San Francisco, there's lots of uh, thoughts about the the hippie movement that sprung up there. And then you're talking about defence money coming in. And now we're seeing these really quite extreme forms of capitalism linked to those companies today. So how much political power does Silicon Valley hold? 
That's a very good question. The whole nature of politics in Silicon Valley have changed. When Silicon Valley was emerging, it certainly was never right-wing conservative in any major sense. You tended to have what you would call middle-of-the-road politicians. And in the past, they also tended to support sort of pragmatic Democrats like Bill Clinton. What's happened in more recent years is Silicon Valley has done two things. It's gone from having a very modest presence in D.C. to having the largest presence. And they've become almost completely progressive Democrats. I mean, they they may not like some of the more extreme positions, but they never say it. They may say it in, in private, but they won't say it in public. But Silicon Valley, particularly after the 2020 and even after the election of Trump, sort of went very decisively to the left at the same time that they had tremendous uh, lobbying power. And one of the key issues for Silicon Valley is they have been very adept at playing the Democrats off. The Democrats, you know, historically always been cheaper to buy than the Republicans, although that's probably not so much the case anymore. But the, the Silicon Valley firms also have a very strong hold on what you might call the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. You know, the free market, anything capital wants is good, basically. I'm, that's the way I see them. So you've also got that element. And so between the two, they really have very dominant power. The only major dissenters, there are a few, uh, but they tend to come from the libertarian wing, uh, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and Ellison over at Oracle. But Ellison is, you know, at, towards the end of his career. Um, Musk is Musk, you know, <laughs> there's no categorizing him. And Peter, who I know, is a pretty hardline libertarian. But they have enormous political power and they have enormous media power. That's the thing that people forget. Some of the biggest companies in Hollywood are increasingly companies from the tech industry. But the reality is that really people are inundated with information that is siphoned through institutions that are, in many cases, very much dominated and even owned by tech people. You know, I used to work for the Washington Post. It's owned by Jeff Bezos. You know, it's amazing how tech gets covered at a place like that. Um, you have enormous influence of the nonprofits that they fund. I mean, you know, when you think about people like, you know, Gates's ex-wife, uh, Bezos's ex-wife and Lorraine Jobs, who's a widow, these people have tens of billions of dollars and they can spend it on whatever they want to spend it on. So what we're seeing is also enormous amount of power in media, in culture, in politics. And there really is no group that has remotely the resources. I want to pick up on something you said about the philanthropy aspects, because Silicon Valley's success has really transformed the Bay Area. And it's got an awful homelessness crisis going on, the highest rent in the US, a lot of poverty. And the, it's a very stark contrast if you walk around San Francisco, for example. And people are saying, you know, this city is no longer livable. So how much do we blame Silicon Valley for that? Well, a good friend of mine was the largest apartment developer in Silicon Valley. And he said to me, you know what? I've worked in lots of places. I have never met a group of people who are less conscious of the impact of what they do than the Silicon Valley people. You know, let's face it, they're engineers. They tend not to know much history. They, they're they not the most cultured people in the world. I mean, given the amount of wealth in Silicon Valley, you would think it would have a unbelievable arts community. 
Actually, the arts capital of California is easily Southern California and particularly Los Angeles. But the reality is that this is a group of people who had no thought really about what their civic responsibilities are. Um, There's some, Benioff at Salesforce does some stuff, but most of them, when they approach things, they take the progressive party line. They don't even think hard. Like, you know, do you think that maybe decriminalizing theft under $1,000 might have an impact on how people behave? Do you think that if you're going to make it difficult for for people in stores to stop people from stealing, you think that's going to have an impact? But these are engineers. They're not social scientists. They're not historians. They're not even particularly wise people. You would think that they would be saying, God, we moved into San Francisco and look what we wrought. Look what we created. I don't think those thoughts go through their heads because they don't look at the world that way. This is a, I would say, almost a post-human worldview. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. (laughs) They're interested in solving a technical problem. You know, Daniel Bell wrote this very well almost 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where Bell basically said, look, if you're an engineer, you tend to look at the world in an engineer's way. You know, it's like that old saying that to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's some truth that, you know, everything can be solved by a technological fix. And I'm not going to think about what the impact is. Like So given the impact on young people, you would think they'd be having second thoughts, but they just want to keep expanding and they want to keep getting more and more knowledge. And this leads us to the AI discussion, which, uh, you know, I think is the next phase. And what can we expect from AI? There could be some good things. AI could be very useful in propulsion systems. It could be useful in medicine. It could be useful in making life better. But where is the money going to go? It's going to go into social media. It's going to go into essentially propaganda in many cases. And it's going to be more power, more surveillance, more information, more censorship. And so I think what you're going to see is a great enforcement of the party line, if you will. And I think that that's going to be you know very dangerous. I, you know, I always compare it to crack cocaine. It's cheap, it's easy, and you can get high really fast. And I can tell you, I've seen it myself. You look at papers that you get from students, and you know that they didn't write them. You, know, you can tell by the paragraphing. You can tell by the fact that there are no citations. And, and so I, I think AI is going to be a very, very dangerous interlude, given the fact, and this is most important, that it's going to be controlled by five or six companies. We're seeing already this influence with things like the open letter calling for a moratorium, which conveniently has OpenAI at the top of the chain. Uh, so they will stay in, in the top of the chain if they do a six-month moratorium. So there's definitely a lot of vested interest in controlling this development. Yes. And there's also the other side of this, which we shouldn't neglect, which is th- that for Wall Street, AI is sort of the branch that they're hanging on to. Because really, most of the indicators in the U.S., I mean, we're not as screwed as Europe. But, you know, our incomes have been declining. A lot of credit card debt, people can't pay their rents. I mean, there are lots of very serious issues. But the thing that, that the market can cling to is, here's the next great thing, and we can make a lot of money on it. And, and that's really what is driving things. So, you know, basically, you have a, a group of people who are, are becoming politically dominant, culturally dominant, 
and financially dominant. Because you, in many ways, if you're one of these big investment banks, Silicon Valley is your lifeline, particularly with some of the Green New Deal policies that we have. You know, you're not going to get a lot of expansion probably in agriculture and home construction and uh, in, in, in most forms of manufacturing because all those things generate GHG. And, and, and if you've decided that your goal is to limit your GHG as a country, which makes no sense since it's a global phenomenon, but be that as it may, I think what you're, what you're seeing is a very, very difficult situation for the overall economy and for people in general. On the other hand, enormous riches, enormous riches. We're, we're talking about, for instance, you're talking about companies like Apple worth in the trillions of dollars. They're, they're bigger than most countries. Some of the individuals in the tech world are wealthier than mid-sized countries. That kind of concentration of wealth and power is very dangerous. It was very dangerous when a few uh, feudal lords dominated uh, Britain, and it's dangerous when a few tech feudal lords dominate the United States. Is that why then you've you've written a, an article called "The End of the Silicon Valley Dream"? Do you think does that play into that? Then, what's your vision of what's going to happen next? Here's what I think has changed, and I knew some of these people. I, you know, I, I I I had lunch with Steve once, but you know, I I've spoken to Noyce, I've spoken to Don Valentine, some of the big venture capitalists. Most of them were engineering type people, you know, classic nerds. But they really just wanted to make things work better. That was the goal. You know, let's make communications easier, make space flight possible, improve medical technology, all these great things. The, the people who have replaced them are increasingly interested in controlling the culture, controlling information, and have their sort of bizarre, you know, engineer-oriented ideas of how to restructure society. So the, the new Silicon Valley is really more a, a hindrance in many ways to society than, than an advantage where it had been a wonderful phenomena. It had improved many, many things. But today, it's basically become a series of, of oligarchic companies with, in most cases, with 80, 90% market shares. I mean, why, do, why should Microsoft improve its product when it's got 90% of the operating systems? So what do you think will happen then? Do you think there's going to be a reduction in their influence or is it going to implode in some way? Is this the end of Silicon Valley? It's the end of Silicon Valley as the symbol of innovation and the center of a sort of new, more, if you will, democratic economy. Um, Silicon Valley will remain a power center as long as it's the headquarters of, you know, four or five of the most important tech companies. But it will no longer be the place that people go to to reach their dreams as a entrepreneurial center, as a innovation center. I think it will not be what it was. Are there any other places out there competing to become the next Silicon Valley? Yeah, I mean, already there are certain parts of the country that are growing their tech economies faster than Silicon Valley. Um, that would be Austin, Nashville, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, Salt Lake City. These are all really um, stepped it up. And then there's also this other migration with, that's happening even within these companies where lots of their employees are now living in 
you know, up in Yolo County, which is uh, north and east of Silicon Valley. They're living in Lake Tahoe area. They're living all over and commuting electronically. So I think, again, that concentration of brain power, the sort of uniqueness of the valley, I think is increasingly gone. It is now more akin to sort of Detroit in the period of the big three than it is what it was before. And, uh, you know, we all know what happened to Detroit. I think that's a very good summation of this. And Joel, I want to thank you very much for joining me in the bunker today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get perks like ad-free episodes. I'm Dr Kate Devlin, and thank you for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Dr Kate Devlin. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.